Lucky Land slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. Dearly beloved, we are gathered here today to... Has anyone seen the bride and groom? Sorry, sorry, we're here. We were getting lucky in the limo and we lost track of time. No, Lucky Land Casino, with cash prizes that add up quicker than a guest registry. In that case, I pronounce you lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Daily bonuses are waiting. No purchase necessary. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Blog Talk Radio. Listening to Q Talk Radio. Q Talk Radio is an LGBT talk radio station. We're also the creators of the LGBT Hero Awards. I'm your host, Xavier Mejia. Today is July 21st and the time is 12 p.m. Thank you for joining us today. Today's episode is one out of six. Our guest is Marta Segura. Marta Segura is the CEO of her own public affairs firm, Gold a change agent, strategist, coalition builder, nonprofit consultant, and board member of the Southern California Leadership Network, the Los Angeles League of Conversa- uh, Cons- Conservation Voters. Help me welcome Marta Segura. Segura. I, I know I'm saying your last name wrong, Marta. How are you? Good, good. How, how are you, Xavier? Great to be here with you today. <laughs> And you're pronouncing it correctly. It is Segura, so your pronunciation is great. No worries. Oh, okay, okay. Good, 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 good. Well, you know, thank you for, you know, accepting my invitation to come on uh, our show to talk about, you know, this heavy discussion. And one of the things I've prefaced, uh, you know, to, to our audience earlier on leading up to today is that, you know, we're going to be talking about something that a lot of Latino families um, don't speak about very openly. And I have a feeling that many families don't speak about this openly. And that's, uh, you know, the, the topic of incarceration, the, the to- topic of, of the jail system and how it's affected Latino uh, families. And, and this you know, term. I think we're going to be using this term a lot. This this pipeline uh, from mm-hmm. you know the school to prison pipeline. So I thank you for for accepting my invitation to speak with me. Um, I reached out to you because I I read your article and um, you know you speak about this very specific issue. So thank you for accepting my invitation. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and I just wanted to uh, say that the the thing that started this, I've been looking at it for a long time, but uh, La Comadres uh, is a network of mothers interested in education, and the the network asked me to write for their blog, and I just want to do a shout-out for them, because even though I can't say, you know, I'm going to say up front, I'm not an expert on this issue, but I am uh, social justice advocate, and this is one of the major issues I think that is affecting our community, um, our community's ability to prosper, and our education. So it's definitely an issue that 
it's close to home and, and almost every Latino family, I think every Latino family has somebody who's gone to jail or prison, youth camps or all of the above. And we, we feel guilty about it and we feel like it's dishonorable. And I think that that's exactly why we need to put it out in the open and talk about what the policy um, issues are that have created this uh, environment in our communities and have disproportionately put our kids and our youth and p- predominantly our male youth into youth camps, although it's also our young women who are being put into um, these youth camps and prison pipelines. So thank Correct. you for having me here. And and I also want to say real quick that, um, and we'll talk about it more later, it's not unrelated to immigration detention centers because um, the same uh, prison industrial complex that pays for the development of new private prisons is also paying for the development of, of immigration, private immigration detention centers. And the bottom line is we're not even counting those numbers in this article where I said one out of six, one out of every six males ends up in, or Latino males ends up in prison. That's not even mm-hmm. counting the number of males and family members that end up in those immigration detention centers. So that would, that number would be a lot larger if we counted that. Right. Um, well, thank you for saying all of that. I want to share with folks that Martha has more than 20 years of management, leadership, and advocacy and experience in public and nonprofit sectors, and has served as district director for the then council member, Eric Garcetti, and now mayor of Los Angeles. So um, that said, can you share with our listeners a little bit about who you are, um, where did you grow up, um, who were your influences, and and um, how did you get to, you know, have your own public affairs firm? <laughs> well, that's a pretty long story, but I'll try to make it short. I, I was born and raised in San Jose, California, um, and I think that my influencers were my teachers. Um, back then, it was right after the civil rights movement, so there were teachers in my school that were part of the Chicano movement and were very uh, upfront. Like only 1% of you will end up in college. More than 50% of you will not graduate from high school. You can't be one of those statistics. And so I, when I heard that um, when my freshman year in high school from my teacher, Mr. Montenegro, who ended up being a superintendent um, mm-hmm. uh, in another school district, I'm like, what? This is, you know, that totally that politicized me. And then I realized that there were, there were other teachers like him around me, and I gravitated towards those teachers because they were there to really help us and support us, and they understood our neighborhoods, they understood our environment and where we were coming from. So I, I have to give those teachers from both my elementary school and high school a lot of credit, and I, and I also have to do a shout-out for the Upward Bound Program because the Upward Bound Program existed back then. It still does today, but I think back then it was it was revolutionary to to put a kid from high school in um, in a college environment at a very young age, in spite of their bad grades, in spite of you know the environment that they came from and how difficult things were. So I think that that's how I got started. You know that that's what politicized me and made me very aware that. Um, our kids were being tracked um, in high school, even then, to um, the the lowest level um, classes, and none of them were in the like quote unquote AP classes. And, mm-hmm. and it was really um, anyway. That's kind of where my influences started. But then I went to UC Santa Barbara, 
um, for my bachelor's degree and got even more politicized then because I, you know, not only took courses in biology because I was, uh, I, I didn't really know what I wanted to do, but I knew that I loved science, I loved nature, and I understood the effects of um, of malathion and other toxics on our house. So I thought that science would be a good field for me. But I took Chicano studies too, and, and Chicano studies further made me aware of the disproportionate, you know, impact of of the of the policies that are created on our communities, on communities of color. And then from there, I moved on to a master's degree in public health uh, because I continued with like my my um, desire, my my passion to protect people from from toxic toxics in our community. And public health seemed like a good master's degree program for that. Um, so I think I'll stop there because <laughs> then I'll go into our history of where we are now. So I don't know if that sort of answers your questions about how I'm here today. But in a way, I call myself an, an, an accidental advocate because I didn't realize back then that I would be um, doing what I'm doing today. And in many ways, a lot of what I'm doing kind of just happened because I am an advocate and I did speak out and I became an organizer and when I was an organizer for Communities for a Better Environment, for example, is when I met um, Ana Guerrero, who is now the mayor's chief of staff. And she was the chief of staff for then council member Garcetti when he was a council member. So she remembered me and she realized that the council member at that time needed to really engage the community in the way that we engage people in, the, in, the, um, in Southeast Los Angeles. And so she hired me as the district director and and uh, and that's what got me into um, government work, and and it was really revealing to me how important it was for our communities to understand how we can access government, what government is supposed to do for us, and how key it was so that we can change things in our community for us to be civically engaged and and share our voices with those in power that are willing to help. Um, so anyway, I. I, I think I'll stop there, Javier, Xavier. Uh, you know, uh, so Martha, I, I, I know that you received your master's in public health at uh, mm-hmm. UCLA. Uh, go Bruins, right? <laughs> um, <laughs> yes, definitely. Uh, so that that said, is that what led you to LA? I mean, uh, you know, 20 years is, you know, a good amount of of experience, so uh, yeah. you know, h- hence why we're talking about many, many facets of your life. But um, it, how long have you been in LA for? I've been in LA since 1988. So yeah, UCLA is what brought me to Los Angeles because I, uh, you know, I felt that it was important for me to get the master's uh, degree, and UCLA's program seemed to be the best. But once I was here, I realized that. There was a lot of work to do here, and there were a lot of opportunities for um, for advocates like like us, um, and that that this was a good place for me to stay. I fell in love with Los Angeles, its environment, its politics, its culture, um, and yeah, that's what that's what drew me here, and that's what kept me here. But uh, definitely, I you know love the fact that I'm a Bruin, and that. And now I live in South LA, so go figure that right because I'm close to closer to USC than I am to UCLA. That's a, <laughs> right. a that's a much more expensive neighborhood. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so let, let let's start talking about you know sort of some of the um, 
the phrases or, or, or let's help, you know, folks understand the difference between, you know, a youth camp and a, and a prison. And, you know, again, we, we speak a lot about the school uh, pipeline to the pipeline. So can you share with folks, what do we say, well, what does it mean when we're talking about a pipeline? Um, when we're talking about the school to prison pipeline, we're talking about how in our um, communities of color, the schools there, especially in the past um, decade and before, were more likely to suspend our kids, um, kids, or even get get our kids arrested or their parents arrested for for missing school. I remember um, getting a letter when when my son was in public school when he missed more than five days in in the trimester. Um, it basically, I don't remember what code it was, but it basically said, look, at, you're the responsible um, guardian for your son, and if he misses school, you too will be, um, uh, res- you know, I, I can't remember the exact wording, but basically I would be uh, uh, cited and I could be sent to court to um, ensure that my son, my son, uh, was back in school. So basically, if he missed too much school, I would be arrested and I could end up in jail. So basically, we were um, having punitive solutions to uh, issues that were of a social um, and economic nature. So if a parent was homeless or if a child was homeless and they missed too many days in school, both of them could end up in jail or or mm. expelled or suspended. And, and those numbers were and are so much higher in our communities, but the realization has finally entered our our legislative system that that it's a disproportionate amount that's affecting our kids. So laws, local laws, have now been in, been put into place that have made the schools aware that they need to find alternative solutions. But the schools or prison pipeline came as a result of crime bills in the 90s and really even before that, but. When President Clinton was um, uh, elected, he he vowed to be tough on crime. So he passed the crime bill, and a provision of that was the three strikes. Um, and then after he was successful in passing the three strikes at the federal level, states like California passed it at the state level, and then we implemented them at the local level, which affected how we treated our, our kids and, and our schools and, and their environments. And so a lot of kids ended up becoming, um, um, having too many misdemeanors or having too many violations, and they, they were instead put on a path to, to youth camps, which leads them to a path to prison uh, because that's the training that they're receiving, right? They're not receiving training to go to college. They're receiving training to, to go to jail and to go to prison because they're being treated like criminals even when they're in school. So, so what is a youth camp? When you're under age, um, when you're under 18 years old, uh, they, and it's not a very serious crime, uh, those are supposed to be um, rehabilitation centers for our youth. But, but they're far from that, right? And, and unfortunately, many of our youth then end, end up there, and uh, they're not anywhere near Los Angeles. They're like in... Santa Clarita or Palmdale or in rural areas away from the city. So they're sort of out of sight and, and out of mind. 
but unfortunately that's where our young men um, who are in high school and young women who are in high school who have um, uh, violated the law in in the eyes of the law or the eyes of the school, um, that's where they end up. You know, I, I actually visited um, uh, a local, well, it's known as a juvenile hall here, uh, uh, Los Padrinos Juvenile Hall that's in Downey. Um, I went through a fellowship program with public allies and part of our uh, work was to go to Los Padrinos and help with you know, some some young people there. And I was reading a little bit about Los Padrinos, and it says it opened in 1957 as the second oldest juvenile uh, detention facility in L.A. County, and that children are housed there while awaiting court action or transfer to another uh, probation facility, such as a juvenile camp, a placement, or um, or a commitment of the uh, the youth, what is it here? The commitment at the California Youth Authority, and you mm-hmm. know, it, it was um, it was uh, in having you do research for this particular episode. You know, I was focusing a lot about you know the eighteen and over demographic and and you know my age range and 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 near you know. But when I came back to this specific this specific demographic, you know, mm-hmm. I have to say the conversation completely turned for me. And, and I was reminded of seeing these young folks and, you know, my husband working at a school, I've visited his school on many occasions. And I said, you know, it's really interesting. I've actually seen young people this size in, um, in, a, in a camp. And he said, what do you mean? And, and I speak about it. And I've talked to other people about, and they can't relate. They can't even imagine. It's almost as though... I'm creating a fantastic world and they have no clue. So how can we share with folks what this looks like and, and um, what the, what the problem really um, entails, what entails the, the, the whole process, you know, because I think oftentimes we're, we're thinking about the system as something that's only, you know, happening to 18 year olds or 30 year olds or four year olds. But when we're talking about this pipeline, we're, we're specifically including this demographic. How, how, do we, how do we start the conversation at home that this exists, that this is, you know, that this is part of the problem? Right. I, I think that you're absolutely right. We don't really talk about it as a, a mass incarceration problem of our youth. We may experience it in our families and think that we're alone and think that there are you know, our our son or our daughter is alone in that experience. But I think where I start is at, at the root of the problem, which are the policies that were created that um, perpetuated this, uh, this kind of um, mass incarceration. And that's why I went back to the tough on crime bills from the 90s, because um, it really helped uh, elected officials get reelected right and it was something that sounded great on their campaigns we're going to be tough on crime we're going to make your community safer we're going to make sure your kids are safer and your families are safer well you know we talk about voting against your own interests we we too you know latinos also voted for the democrats and and the republicans perhaps that promised to be tough on crime because we wanted our families and our kids to be safer. But unfortunately, what it ended up doing 
was um, funding um, the development of prisons, the development of jails, the development of youth camps, of detention centers. And once those were built, they had to be filled because the, the developers and the companies that created them wanted to send the subcontractors to government and get paid for everybody, every, every single person that was put in that prison or in that jail. So it's a real self-fulfilling prophecy. Once you say, I'm going to be tough on crime, you say, well, I need to build a prison. Once you want to build a prison, then you have to fill it. And then you fill it with the most vulnerable individuals in our communities, right? The ones mm-hmm. that have that don't have lawyers, the ones that don't have um, the ability to defend themselves, and the parents who have the resources to do so. So, and 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 I think that that's where I start because then you can see why it's not just affecting your child or just affecting your daughter. It's affecting um, thousands. It's, it's actually affecting 2.5 million people in the United States. And in the 80s, we only had 300,000 people in prison in the United States. So you can see how much more um, we've, the, you know, the prison industrial complex has grown from the 1980s to the, to the present. And I think that um, the best way to, to understand that is to maybe go visit one, you know, go visit a facility. Like you said, there was one in, something in Downey, um, but, but there's, there's plenty in Palmdale. And the probation officers at uh, L.A. County and, the, and then the probation commissioners at L.A. County can also facilitate, you know, a visit like the one you had with public allies to visit those, um, those mm-hmm. camps. I was reading that a 2007 study by the Advancement Project and the Power Youth Center for Social Change says that that every 100 students that were suspended, 15 were black, 7.9 were American Indian, and 6.8 were Latino, and only 4.8 were white. The same study reports that the U.S. spends about $70 billion annually on, on incarceration, and probation mm-hmm. and parole. So it also says that the, the, this number lends itself to 127% funding increase for incarceration since, you know, this period of 1987 to 2007. So that's a 21% increase and in um, a 20 yeah. year span, right? Right, and that's nationwide. And then of course, if you look at, at a a uh, western state or southwestern state like California, you're going to see that um, the numbers for Latinos are even higher. The numbers for incarceration for Latinos are even higher. For example, I have here that uh, the Federal Bureau of Justice for 2012 has Latino men incarcerated at a rate 40% higher than white, um, and that uh, and that they're four times more as likely than whites to end up in prison. So and then and then in Los Angeles and now now Hanbra, um, specifically 75% of those who are arrested for you know having marijuana um, in their possession are Latinos, and they don't make up 75% of the population in Alhambra, right? So there's just a disproportionate amount of um, Latinos and African Americans that are being arrested and then imprisoned for these these nonviolent crimes. And, and and the irony is that now we are 
legalizing marijuana in many states, and there's lobbyists to legalize marijuana, for example, in California. Um, and the businesses that are uh, being opened um, are largely owned by white men, but they figured out a, a legal way to sell marijuana in which they would not get incarcerated, right? And so it's, it's very ironic to me that you're going to have these guys making millions, if not billions of dollars, selling uh, large amounts of a product that, that was being sold by our communities, you know, in the, the 80s and 90s and even in this decade, and, and those guys ended up in, in prison, right, instead of, of being called entrepreneurs. And, and I'm not saying that they should, but I'm saying that there's a real distinct treatment of how we view an individual who opens up a business with a storefront selling a product that's the same, that's exactly the same product, and then an individual who um, who's, who's poor, who comes from a poor community, and so they're going to do it street vendor style, and they're going to end up in, in camps or in prison for doing that. So I think, you know, some of the commentary I've, I've read is sort of, oh, well, you know, you, you do the crime, you pay the time, um, yeah. you do the time correction. Uh, so as easy as that sounds, what does that really mean? What is the, the, the ongoing impact of having served time? Well, what is this, how does this really affect our community uh, in the long run? Because we're right. talking about we're talking about low crime, right? Uh, we're not speaking about uh, we're, we're particularly speaking about the pipeline. We're we're talking about uh, marijuana charges. We I know you and I uh, privately spoke about um, the idea of uh, Latino and Blacks uh, who licenses had you know created. Uh, obstacles, driver's licenses, and have led them to, you know, serve time for unpaid tickets. And and I spoke to you a little bit about my personal experience and and having um, lived some of this myself at an earlier age, 20 years ago. So, but I, I like to get to this place of where we can talk about, you know, what is the long-term effect of having, you know, become having to be the person, the, the person having to go through the system. Um, yeah, and and I know I'm, um, I'm I've also been reading uh, a lot on this, and, and and there was an article that I read recently, and I'm sorry I can't remember who wrote it, but it's, the title was "It's Expensive to Be Poor," right? Because if you get a parking ticket and it's dollars, um, and you can't afford it, then you're just gonna put it aside and put it aside, eventually it could become, you know, uh, you know, $1,500 parking ticket by the time you make it to, to court. And, and unfortunately, that's enough for them to take away your license and take away your car. That's one example, right? But, but they've done studies that, that, that say that this is a widespread problem in Latino and African-American communities. So if you remove a car from a family that uses it to go to work, that uses it to put their kids to school, well, just think about it. They lose their job. Their kids um, have to then walk to school or take the bus to school or miss school. So it perpetuates poverty in our communities. So it has to be the um, brunt of all of these tough-on-crime um, bills that, that are really not meant for 
um, nonviolent crime. They're really, they really should have been for only violent criminals. So I think that we're just now in California coming to the realization that, that this is the case, that this disproportionate impact of these tough-on-crime legislations at the local level, state level, and federal level have really perpetuated a poverty that has made it expensive for everybody, not just for poor people in California. So um, it, it, we've, we've come up with Prop 47 that was passed a couple of years ago, and just this year it was calculated that $37 million was saved because Prop 47 was meant to reduce misdemeanors to penalties from low-level crimes, and it, and and therefore, since we were able to reduce them to misdemeanors, a lot of the prisoners were released that didn't have violent crime um, associated with them. And therefore, we didn't have to pay the prisons, the, the state government and the federal government didn't have to pay the prisons for those persons being in prison. So there was a saving as of this year of $37 million, and that money is going to these anti-recidivism programs, which means we want to invest that money so that these uh, low-level criminals don't don't go back to prison, but they're educated, they're trained, they're they're supported with social services that will keep them out of prison, and more importantly, give them their lives back, give them you know uh, uh, an, uh, an opportunity to really thrive. So that's what the goal is, and um, but we've really just started that, really just started that experiment, and hopefully. Um, Hopefully, it will continue. And I think, you know, part of the issue that this also creates is this idea that if I'm made to serve time for a nonviolent uh, activity, low crime, um, how do you then have confidence in our system? How, how do you then see, uh, you know, uh, police officers as your to-go person for safety? You know, I think that there's also this undertone of, um, you know, I have to stay under the radar, have to maintain under the radar for my safety, for, for you know, so that uh, what is the crime? The crime is that you're poor because mm-hmm. the example that you gave is that, you know, your, your license gets taken away, your car gets taken away. And somehow you still have to provide either for yourself or your for yourself and your family, and um, that doesn't mean that the that that the the amount that you owe has gone away, you know. So you still have the issue that you have to meet some way. It, it doesn't go away. It's not. It doesn't just disappear. Um, mm-hmm. So how do you advance um, when when you have this barrier and you're having to maintain an, under the radar? And I also think that part of the discussion that I that I that I'm fascinated by is that um, we don't talk about it enough. Um, you know, I, I've had many friends, you know, that I that are now in executive positions, who are in political positions, who are in positions with a little bit more economic power, and yeah. you know, in our private discussions, we'll say, "Oh, well, when I was younger, this happened. Oh, I've had this experience." Um, you know, uh, my I, I, I'm a bit prejudiced uh, about law enforcement because of this. Growing up, I was harassed, and you know, they used to say I look mm-hmm. like a cholo or this and that. You know, but but I don't really hear people. 
speaking about it publicly, you know, and, and what I find interesting is that we have the Black Lives Matter, um, you know, campaign, and it's so important, and it's so, it, it's, it's an important message, um, and I was hoping that that would also bring to the table our discussion that we need to have with with our own people, you know, hey, this isn't this is an issue that hasn't gone away. And if anything, mm-hmm. um, if it doesn't go away, it's going to be our kids who are going to be filling up the new jail, you know. Um, exactly. So so this is this is why I think it's important to, to have this discussion. I, I know we'll, we'll continue to talk about it, but um, what are your thoughts about all of that? Well, well, I definitely feel that. Um, you know, it, it is a bigger discussion, and I do think we can be grateful to Black Lives Matter because they have really brought the issue of the, you know, school-to-prison pipeline to bear and, and police um, um, arresting more kids of color, Latinos and African Americans, um, has been an issue that they've also raised, which has made it easier for us to raise this issue and for us to get some media attention and us to get articles written in the newspaper about, you know, the disproportionate impact of those policies on, on Latinos, because really we live in the same community. So we live under the same laws and under the same police enforcement and under the same guise of, um, you know, school to prison pipelines. So I have a number here that says um, black and Latino students are twice as likely not to graduate from high school. Um, 50% of the children in the foster care system are blacks involved in school arrests or referred to, um, are referred to as um, black or Latino. This is from an infographic created by the Community Coalition, and I kind of want to give them a shout-out, too, because they have been working on uh, Prop 47 to make sure that that $37 million goes back to anti-recidivism um, and making sure it goes back to the communities. But they've also been working on creating the, the, the awareness and these infographics to um, ensure that members of our community, both in the Latino community and the African American community, know how massively it's impacting our community in every way. Like I said earlier, it really perpetuates, you know, poverty. It really perpetuates lack of education because if you're a foster mm-hmm. care student um, and your parents, one of your parents is in prison and one of your parents is detained, um, and you don't have a, a real guardian to look over you you are 70% more likely to end up in state prison. So, in fact, 70% of foster care, uh, emancipated foster care youth end up in prison. That's a really stark number. And, and it's, it's unfortunate because what that means is this, this mass incarceration that has created fatherless and motherless children has perpetuated those children themselves ending up in prison, those children themselves not having economic viability or a future. So, you know, when you talk about police brutality and police um, engagement in this, I think, yes, they have a responsibility to um, ensure that they get, you know, that these larger policies have really forced them to, to put more of our in prison, but they don't see it that way. What, unfortunately, most police don't see the bigger picture. What they see is the day-to-day violence. So we have mm. to ensure that police can see the bigger picture 
especially our Latino and African-American police that want to make a difference, that want to be doing good, that want to you know, make our community safer, I think that we have an opportunity to, to share with them the root of all of these issues and to make sure that they have more compassion and they understand that, that Prop 47 and other legislation like it that ensures that nonviolent criminals don't go to prison um, are, is really important. And it's not something that, that has been established to make them less important, but actually more important in our communities. But we want them to be peacekeepers. We want them to be um, liaisons and ambassadors of peace instead of just like these uh, individuals who come with a lot of adrenaline and fear into our communities that have youth that have autism, that have ADHD, that have other mental health issues. Because if you bring in fear and you bring in adrenaline into a situation where there's already a lot of fear because of a multiplicity of issues, that's just going to create uh, the result that, that we've been getting, right, which is, you know, death by the shooting of an officer or some other um, result that is negative towards that community. Is it is it uh, coincidental that the youth camps, these youth centers, are in places where we don't really get to see them? Do you think that's coincidental? I mean, I'm not trying to get into a conspiracy theory, but I, 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 part of what I'm thinking is that if we don't see it, if we don't see what that looks like, if it's not in our backyard, um, how do we know what we're dealing with and how, how do we know what it looks like and, and therefore how do we grasp the concept? Yeah, um, of course, I, I don't have the uh, <laughs> evidence to prove, but I don't think it's coincidental. And also, when you think about where these youth camps are, um, they're in more like rural conservative areas that, that have individuals that are voting for the bonds that will build those prisons in their communities because they want the jobs as prison guards or as the administrators of those prisons because these are these prisons and youth camps are pushed as economic development strategies in communities that have no jobs, right? So if mm-hmm. you take a prison to a rural area where there are no jobs, they're going to say, heck yeah, we, we want a prison because that means I'm going to get a job that pays me from fifty dollars to $100,000 a year and all of my, yeah. you know, community. So it, 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 it cuts both ways, right? People want it in those communities. It keeps them out of our communities because we don't want um, we don't want the visibility of the impact of those policies being seen inside of our communities. And um, and then unfortunately, it's pushed as an economic development tool, which which it shouldn't be. It should be a rehabilitation tool, a rehabilitation strategy that educates our kids and brings them back to health and wellness and mental health, so that they can be. I'm happy and, and thriving in, the, in, in society and, and, and in their communities. You speak on an important point because I think there's this misconception that the school to prison pipeline really uh, only affects uh, the student or the youth or the person going through it and potentially even their family. But mm-hmm. and that it sort of it happens over there and it happens in that home and it happens in that complex. But really, the the effect of it affects our whole society. Um, so I think that you know, speaking about mental health, speaking about poverty, uh, I think that's important to include because it, it, that seems much more tangible, much more reachable. I mean, we can all be at that 
place. But somehow, you know, we we criminalize students when we're saying, oh, well, you know, they have so many absences. Or I actually um, was around a teacher one day who happened to say, oh, well, that one student, that that student, you have to watch out for that one. That one uh, stole so and so mm-hmm. pencil. And I said, excuse me, he said that again. And and the word that this particular teacher was saying was stole. And I said, oh, really? Like in first grade, we're already, you know, we're already calling that kit. <laughs> it's yeah. a pencil, you know. We're we're talking about a pencil, and 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 if we look at it from a very black and white perspective, then we'll we'll use the word steal, right? It's he stole that pencil. But and I realized that so well. What is the lesson here? Here and how do you teach a first grader um, the the bigger consequences? How do you help them develop language? to advocate for themselves. And I'm speaking for both students, the student that, that now had the pencil missing, now the student that really just wanted the pencil, right? You know, how do you teach that one student and say, oh, you know, I really like that pencil and I was really drawn to it and I wanted to just have it for myself. You know, how do you teach um, uh, a lexicon to a first grader that helps them understand their own thought process? Uh, to help foster good mental health and, and emotional intelligence and impulse control. Because those are really, that's really what we're, we're trying to solve, right? We're trying to make sure that yeah. we're, we, we're healthy, productive members of society. But what does that really mean? And that means taking the time to be able to teach uh, a first grader how to speak about the desire of the pencil, and for the other student, the, the fact that uh, they didn't like that their pencil was taken, and what does that mean, and how do you communicate to the other person or your teacher your, or neighbor, uh, you know, I want my pencil back, and, and this is what happened, versus coming right. in and be the teacher that says, oh, guess what, you're going to the office because you took that student's pencil, and then, uh, so that word stole as a first grader really brought up that that um, awareness for me. Like, okay, how do we how do we reframe that incident, you know, so that it's productive and it really is um, uh, has a long term effect, you know, teaching the language, mm-hmm. teaching the behavior pattern teaching, you know, again, the emotional intelligence and the impact, I'm sorry, and, and, and um, impulse control, you know, and that's really, yeah. I think, that the, the homework here. Um, so one of the things that, I, you know, if you don't have students in, in the classroom, how are you, how are you going to teach a student, you know, how do, you know, so putting them in a the camp, what does that, what does that really do? What is that really perpetuating? Yeah. Well, you brought up a lot of issues right there, but I, I think what I what I expected as a mother for my son at school was character development. And when I had him at the school that should will go in Maine, um, I got one of those teachers when my son was in kindergarten. My son was uh, was one of the only Latino kids in that class, if not the only Latino kid. There were a few more African American kids, but mostly it was white. And it was a public school, and uh, I thought it was going to be a great school because it was it wasn't a charter, but it was a magnet, right? And so the kindergarten teacher, even though she was Latina herself, was constantly um, blaming my son for for in a punitive way instead of looking at the bigger picture that my son 
was the youngest kid in the class that my son's emotional development wasn't as high as the other kids because they were older than him. Um, you know, so she, she even when she he drew a, a dog that was blue instead of brown, she said, your kid isn't normal. He's drawing a blue dog instead of a, a brown dog, and that's not that's not uh, in par with his where his development should be. And she was mm-hmm. always writing him up negatively, and I and I bring that up as an example because I ultimately had to take him out of that not just that classroom but that entire school because she created a record for him in his file that was going to follow him in that school and then maybe forward. And I was just like, this is, this is crazy. I don't know how to deal with this whole system right now, so I am just going to remove my son from the school, but I have the power to remove him from that school. But your point is really well taken. We need to have character development in the schools, and we need to have teachers, especially for the younger years, that teach um, emotional, uh, social development and really understand how important that is for the rest of their lives. It's not just the academics or the ABCs or learning how to read. In fact, it's even more important that they have social emotional development at that age. And if they're being accused of stealing at, at a five or six, they are then labeling themselves from that point forward as thieves. And, and that framing creates and perpetuates the problem that we're, we're discussing here today. So um, I think that it's why people are asking for reform in the educational system. It's why people are asking for teachers that do more than academics. It's, 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 it's really all of those issues combined into one because our youth are our most valuable resource for our future. And I don't have the answer to that, but I, I, I do think that that's why my article is an educational blog because all the moms that write for this blog really care about the social, emotional, and academic development of youth, and we know we deserve more than what we're getting. More than 50% of our kids should be graduating from high school. More than 2% of our kids should be going to college. And if the system that we have now isn't doing that, and instead it's sending them pipeline towards, towards prison, then, then the whole system needs to be redrawn and redrafted and uh, and I'm glad that that's why we're having this conversation. It's making me a little bit emotional, so I'm going to stop for you to, you know. No, 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 I, I fully understand. It, it is a heavy topic, and I think that's probably why we don't talk about it as much in our families. I know that, um, like I said, having had an experience myself with, with the system 20 years ago, uh, similarly for unpaid, uh, well, it was one ticket that, one citation that had three tickets, <laughs> um, and I was 19 years and I was 19 years old. I at the time I would take the bus to school, so it wasn't even because I was driving a car. I was driving a little moped. Um, I, I I didn't understand that the full you know uh, legal system at the time, and particularly my own rights. I didn't feel like I needed to because I thought I was just a good person, and I would just you know walk through life being a good person making uh you know uh good choices and mm-hmm. and uh so it, when i was confronted with having to deal with uh the citation it, it, i was one of those you know college students that was like oh i'll just put that aside i'll put it away you know i i'm not i don't drive 
So it's not like I'm going to get pulled over. And at some point, you know, I did drive. And at some point, you know, it, it did catch up to me. And um, I had to uh, suffer the consequences. But the reason I bring that up is because, uh, you know, during during the time that I, I was serving for this, for these tickets, I, I, I don't want my, my family to come see me, come visit me. I, I was like just embarrassed about the whole experience. I, I was a soft-spoken, uh, you know, early 20s person. Um, people would ask me, hey, can you speak up? I, I can't make out what you're saying. So, you know, I, I, I really lacked a lot of confidence at that time in my life, and particularly mm-hmm. uh, around mm-hmm. issues like this. That they were, they, I didn't grow up um, particularly seeing somebody in my family experience this. So it was a bit, it was it was an eye-opening moment, and when I came to meet so many people who were there for the exact same reason, I realized there's a big issue here. This is a bigger problem, and yeah. um, it, it really changed the course of my life. It, it's, yeah. it's one of the reasons I became an, an activist and uh, okay. agent of social change, and, and so... Um, you know, it's one of those things that, you know, even though it happened 20 years ago, my family and I have probably only talked about it once, you know, and it was yeah. probably earlier, yeah. early on. <laughs> yeah. So, so, and, so, so I know from experience, I know that, that we don't talk about this. What can we do to get the discussion going? How do, how do we get the ball rolling? How do we get this topic, um, and, you know, in our living rooms that are at our dining tables, how do we, how do we start this uh, conversation? Well, I honestly think that our kids are the key because if our kids can hear this and, and understand that, listen, this is a much bigger issue. This is about the policies that were created that are, that have been detrimental to our, to our communities. And they can then in turn have that conversation with their parents to let them know, look, at this is not um, an issue of shame on our family or an issue of shame on me. It's an issue of shame on our law enforcement uh, policies and our law enforcement itself. And, and they have to change in order to accommodate the, the fact that we have been completely um, targeted and misrepresented and, and, and mass incarcerated. So I think that it's, it's going to be a lot easier to have those conversations with our youth, to bring up those conversations with their parents. And, mm-hmm. and quite frankly, I'll bring up community coalition again, um, because they're having these conversations in, in their um, community center with parents there and they're politicizing parents and kids about this issue. And then La Comadre, it's a great blog and your radio station. If we can, I think it's kind of like this domino effect because because Community Coalition wrote that article, then I wrote my article, then you picked up my article, um, then mm-hmm. this is promoting other people listening to this conversation. The, if those of you listening can hear me, please have this conversation in your families because somebody in your family, whether it's a primo, a tia, a tio, or somebody, has been in prison, has been in jail. I'm, I'm almost 100% sure that all of us have had that experience in, these, in our Latino communities. I know I have, and not just one, but several people. And for the same reason, drug possession, right? Nonviolent crime. And having to do time for, you know, 10, 20 years in a prison for things that they should have just gone to, you know, to rehabilitation for. So it's, and I have had this conversation with my family, and it's, it's actually been very healing because 
they probably thought that we were judging um, the family member that went to prison, but we're, we're not here to judge. We're here to educate. We're here to ensure that we understand our rights. And, uh, and I guess I just ask everybody out there to continue to lift up this conversation when you're talking about education, lift up this conversation when we're talking about homelessness or, 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 or other social justice issues, because this is one of the main reasons we have remained poor. We have perpetuated poverty. We have remained without opportunities that we have foster care children, that we have so much violence in our communities, violence. So we have this violence in our communities in South LA right now, right? There's been a lot of killings, a lot of murders and, and, you know, people are out there asking for unity. Well, I'm sorry. We cannot just ask for unity and have a solution. We have to actually address these issues that we're talking about today. How do we reduce the amount of kids in our community that are in a foster care system? How do we ensure that more of our kids graduate from high school? How do we make sure that their fathers aren't in prison and their mothers aren't imprisoned? Or, you know, those are the, those are the things that we as a community but more importantly our government has to address and let me just say something else that i said in my article our leaders our our elected officials need to talk about this too so we need to turn to our leaders and ask them to bring it up in their talking points when they're addressing community when they're addressing the media because i looked at who the authors of prop 47 were and they weren't latino and Mm -hmm. i and i it amazes me that that we have so many of our kids being affected, yet the authors of that were not Latino. And I, and, I, and I wonder why, you know. Why is it that our Latino elected officials aren't openly talking about this as an issue that they need to revolutionize and transform to ensure that we get it right, that we're not perpetuating more of our kids being in prison or in detention centers because we're breaking up families either way, right? If we pick up an immigrant who's working because he's an undocumented immigrant, put him in a detention center, we're creating fatherless children who will likely end up in foster care at some point, who will then likely end up in prison, even if they are American citizens, right? So because the children are often American citizens of those that are picked up for detention centers, and we're breaking up families, and for what? To make a few people at the very top who are the developers of these private detention centers and prisons, wealthy, where it, where it makes our communities um, poor. So there's a real dichotomy there. And I think if we can get angry enough and passionate enough about the issue and understand the core, the core reason behind it, then we can mobilize our community to also get involved. We need to be supportive of Black Lives Matter. And in doing so, we need to lift our voices about those that are affected in our community and say, you know what, we not only support you and we empathize with you and we sympathize with you, but we also we also want to lift our voices to make sure that everybody knows that this is affecting our community just as much. And, and therefore, our elected officials need to get involved as well. And our elected officials need to make this transformation with you. Thank you for saying all of that. I think that that you hit it right on on the uh, head there. That you know, if, if our political um, climate is only about the the one individual issue, and not really addressing this particular issue, the issue of incarceration, the the 
pipeline that, that we were talking about earlier, that if we don't do that, then all those other solutions are just band-aids and that, that really this here has to be talked about, this issue of, of people of color and uh, mass incarceration. So I hope that we can continue the discussion. That I guess I shouldn't say that we can. Let's continue this discussion. It's important. Martha, I want to thank you so much for joining us today. Um, you know, like you spoke uh, er, about earlier, lacomadre.org is the place where we can find your article, Latino Youth, Mass Incarceration, and Education. And please follow Martha at, um, on Twitter at Segura for Change. Thank you once again for joining us, Martha. I want to leave our audience with um, some information. I, I saw that Latino LA, latinoLA.com has an event coming up tomorrow, uh, mm. so Friday, July 22nd at 10 a.m., from 10 a.m. to noon, and it's Latino Fathers and Substance Abuse, Effects and Solutions. So, you know, it sounds like, you know, there, there are other angles that people are trying to to use to, to solve some of the issue here. Um, and, and so um, next time, let's, let's get Latino LA to join us in the discussion. And, you know, I hope that you're available to uh, join us again. Great. Thank you so much, Xavier. I really appreciate it and all that you do for our community and for the LGBTQ community as well. Thank you so much. Thank you, Martha. Likewise, I hope right. you have a wonderful day and we'll connect soon. Ditto. Thank you. Take care. Bye-bye. You're listening to Q-Talk Radio. Q-Talk Radio is an LGBTQ talk radio station. We're also the creators of the LGBT Hero Awards. For more information on this episode and past episodes, please visit qtalkradio.com. I've been your host, Xavier Mejia. Please have a good day. Step into the world of power, loyalty, and luck. I'm going to make him an offer he can't refuse. With family, cannolis, and spins mean everything. Now, you want to get mixed up in the family business. Introducing The Godfather at ChompaCasino.com. Test your luck in the shadowy world of The Godfather slot. Someday, I will call upon you to do a service for me. Play The Godfather, now at ChompaCasino.com. Welcome to the family. VGW Group, no purchase necessary. Voidware prohibited by law. See terms and conditions, 18 plus. Join us today during the Jeep Celebration event. Right now, get 20% below MSRP for an average of 15178 under MSRP on the purchase of a 2023 Jeep Grand Cherokee Overland 4xe or Summit 4xe. Not compatible with lease offers or with any other consumer incentive offers. 15,178 average based on 20% below average MSRP from all 2023 Grand Cherokee Overland 4xE and Summit 4xE models in dealer stock. Residency restrictions apply. Take retail delivery from dealer stock by 4-1. Jeep is a registered trademark.